open up to John 1. John 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, I know I sound like a broken record because we've been in John 1 for three or four weeks now. Um, it's a long chapter. I don't know what to tell you. So uh, John 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, while you're turning there and getting settled, I'd like to thank all of our um, everybody who stuck around last week to help with decorations and, and taking down the Christmas stuff and putting everything away. It got done very quickly because people stuck around and made it happen. So thank you, everybody who stuck around uh, last week to help clean up and get the place um, back uh, back to its lovely normal self uh, rather than its lovely Christmas self. So, um, all right, so we are going to be in, uh, in John 1 this morning. We're in this series that you may believe as we study the Gospel of John. Um, and so we have only just started this series for a few weeks now, but I think at this point we are all very familiar um, with the verses that actually come at the end of the book, specifically John 20, verses 30 and 31, which say, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We have come back and we will continue to come back to those verses over and over again because that is the mission, the point, why John is writing this. That's the end goal of what John is writing. So as he tells us different stories and different accounts of what he witnessed, as he relays the conversations and the teachings of Jesus, all of it is going to come back, funnel back to the point of trying to help the reader, trying to help us understand and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's why this book was written. That's why we are studying it now. John's purpose and goal is that we would believe and respond to this reality. And so in order to prove this message, in order to, to validate this claim, G John brings forth throughout the Gospels seven different major witnesses um, to kind of validate or reaffirm what he believes. And so they each give their testimony. And this morning, we are going to look at testimony number one, and it comes from a relative of Jesus and a key figure in the beginning of his ministry, a man named John, who had a reputation for baptizing people. So much so, um, we often refer to him as John the Baptist. In those days, he was just known as the baptizer because he got so popular. Um, and so he was out near the Jordan River baptizing people. And John's testimony can be summed up really in three words, which are going to be kind of our anchors for this morning. And he has a testimony of no new and now. That's kind of where we're going. Those are our anchor points for this morning. I'm going to pray and then we will uh, jump into John 1. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to gather and to worship you and engage with you and hear from you and engage with our community that you have provided for us and called us to. God, we ask that you would help us as a community, as a family, as a small representation of the big, global, universal, timeless church, that you would help us to grow together in relationship with one another, to grow as individuals as we pursue you and grow together as a community in pursuing you. That we would be the kind of place that people would walk in and, and know that your presence is here. That we would be the kind of place that is known for spurring on one another, lifting one another up, challenging and encouraging one another toward good works. That we would be intentional with the relationships you have provided for us within this church community as well as those outside of it. 
to do these things, to be intentional with these things, to grow in these ways, God. We need you and your guidance, your instruction. We need to have a hunger and a thirst to know you deeper and let that fuel everything else, God. We pray that you would give us that hunger and thirst to know you better. God, as I open your word this morning, as we read together, you have a word for us today. You have a message of challenge or encouragement or rebuke or a little bit of all of them and then some. God, help us to be attentive and respond to what you have for us today. As I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be in John 1, starting in verse 19. We'll read through a section, and then we'll go back and talk about it. So uh, John 1, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. So before we jump into his testimony, let's talk a little bit about who is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. We learn much about him and his ministry from Luke's Gospel, His dad was a priest named Zechariah. His mom was a a woman named Elizabeth. Elizabeth spent most of her life and and grew to be an older woman, um, and she was barren. was not able to conceive, though she prayed, and Zechariah prayed year after year that she would be able to give birth to a son. And then one day, Zechariah, see, at the time of Jesus, um, there were so many Levites, so many priests, upwards near 10, 15,000 of them, Uh, that there was only so many roles in the temple in Jerusalem that you could do. There was only so many roles and so many jobs that the priests could do. And so every year, they basically cast lots, threw dice. Basically, it was a random chance to see who would serve in the temple, who would do these different roles. And to serve in the temple, if if you were a Jewish person, the people who served in the temple, they were of high esteem, high respect. And if you were a Levite, if you were of that tribe that got to serve in that role as a priest and your time came, sometimes some people only got to serve one time throughout their whole life in the temple. And one day the lots fell and Zechariah was chosen. He basically hit the lottery. And he gets to serve God. He gets to go in and he gets to light the lamps. And he goes into the temple to work to serve God. 
and an angel shows up. And an angel shows up and tells him, Zechariah, God has heard your prayers. He has heard the prayers of your wife, Elizabeth. She is going to conceive. She is going to bear a son, and you will name him John. The angel tells him, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearers, the hearers of the fathers to the children, the ears of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is what John is going to be. Zechariah hears all that. He's in the temple. He's talking to an angel. He hears all that, and his immediate response is not one of thanks or one of excitement. He questions this angel with a disbelief. How is it possible? I am old. Elizabeth is old. How is it possible that this could happen? And because that's how he responds, because he questions all of what the angel tells him, the angel tells him, because of your lack of faith, Zechariah, you are going to be struck mute. You are not going to say a word for the entirety of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Insert joke about Pregnancy and dads and moms. I, I couldn't come up with one, but you can come up with one. Zechariah comes out of the temple. Everyone is praying for him. Everyone's excited because he got to serve. He's got nothing to say. He's got nothing to say about this experience. He can't tell anyone what he has experienced. And for nine months, he stays mute. While Elizabeth is pregnant, one day she is visited by a family member of hers, a cousin of hers named Mary, who also happens to be pregnant. When Mary shows up, it says that the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John in his mother's womb, leapt for joy because he was in the same place for the first time as his cousin Jesus. Even then, somehow he knew, even as a baby in his mother's womb, he knew what was coming for he and his cousin was going to be amazing, and he leapt for joy, it says. Fast forward many years later, John is out in the wilderness calling people to be baptized and repent of their sins. People are coming from all over the place out to the banks of the Jordan River to be baptized. Now, John had a presence about himself, a way of carrying himself, not that was quite formal or fancy, actually the complete opposite of that. Mark tells us he was clothed in camel's hair, not because it was high fashion at the time. Mark tells us that he ate locusts and honey, not because he was a foodie. He did things his own way. He lived and spoke and was different. But he was genuine. And the people sensed that and felt that, and they heard his message and were drawn to him. And so that brings us to our passage this morning in verse 19, and starting with the testimony of no. We see temple officials show up in the wilderness. Things are getting big. The officials are taking notice out here in the desert. The temple leaders were concerned with law and order and the way that the Jewish people worshipped. And word has gotten to them that this man is baptizing people. And so, of course, they are interested and concerned. They come out to John and they ask him, who are you? You've got to be more than just some crazy guy in the desert. Your words, your actions, everything about what is going on out here tells us there's something more at play. You're more than just a guy, so who are you? And what's his answer? John's clearly not a normal guy. They ask him, who are you? His answer in verse 20, I am not the Christ. 
See, they were asking something without directly asking something, and John knew it. Because they heard him, and they saw him, and they saw and heard others and how they spoke of him and how they responded to him, and they wanted to know, are you the one? Are you the one we're supposed to be waiting for? Are you the Christ? And the way John replies there, in the, the way he says it, the language he uses, he says, I, and he puts this emphasis on I. It's as if he's saying, I am not the Christ, but he is here. It's not me, but maybe it's somebody around here. See, the gospel writer is making a point to show the point that John was making, that John never at any point overinflated his position or role. He knew who he was and who he wasn't. And that's what he tells them. He says, I'm not the Christ. I know what you're asking. It's not me. So now they get more direct and they ask him, okay, well, if you aren't the Christ, are you Elijah? I'm not. There are prophecies, specifically in the book of uh, Malachi and Zechariah, where they speak about Elijah coming back before the end times. And so the people at that time had this sense of urgency, this sense of hope, and were kind of trying to keep their antennas up at all times. And so John is kind of fitting into this role. And if you really read about Elijah, who's probably one of the most uh, popular prophets of the Old Testament, you could see that if you pay attention to Elijah's ministry, and you look at the way John carries himself, there's a lot of similarities there. Elijah is the one who prays, and there's a three-year drought in the land because the king at that time was disobedient to God and his commands. Elijah is also the one who prays on the top of Mount Carmel, and God rains down fire as he battles and challenges the prophets of Baal. He preached repentance, just like John does. They both dress similar. They both spent time living out in the wilderness. There's a lot of connections and similarities between Elijah and John. And so this question, okay, you're not the Christ, but are you Elijah, is not actually a crazy one. But John says, no, I am not Elijah. See, John is never going to overinflate his status, and he never states an equality with Elijah. But Jesus does. In the other gospel accounts, such as Matthew eleven thirteen. Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is the one who is coming to prepare the way. Now, John refused to publicly declare any kind of level of authority of his own kind, any kind of fame or celebrity status. Instead, his was a testimony constantly of, nope, don't look at me. I'm not the guy. Verse 21, okay, are you the prophet? No. Again, referring to a promise that there was a prophet to come who would be like Moses but greater. It's from Deuteronomy. Are you him? Nope, that's not me either. We get to verse 22. Okay, enough games, John. Who are you? We have to give answers to the higher-ups. We have to go back, and if we go back and they ask us, okay, who is this guy out in the wilderness? And they say, well, he's not this, this, or this. That's not going to help us. We need to know, who are you? If you aren't the Christ, if you aren't Elijah, if you aren't the prophet, what do you say about yourself? It's a good question. How do you identify yourself? When someone asks you, why do you do what you do? 
Why do you live how you live? Why do you spend your time, your money, your energy the way you do? What's your answer? What's the thing that drives you? Now, John could have answered any number of different ways regarding his set-apart status that from before he was even born, God had set him apart for a special call, a special mission, a special job and role. He could have talked about his indwelling Holy Spirit within him, but he chose a different kind of answer. One that once again takes the emphasis and takes it away from himself, and it falls in line with this testimony of Noah. Look at verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Again, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. When Isaiah makes that statement, it's actually in regard metaphorically to fixing the road so God's people could return from exile. It was the promise of a new day, a better day, a day of rest and fulfillment and wholeness and shalom for the people of God. John says, yeah, that's what I've come to do. To prepare the way, to set the table, to get things lined up because the time is at hand. Interestingly, John doesn't say, I am the one who is crying out in the wilderness. He says what in verse 23? What does he call himself? I am the voice. I think there's a definite connection there between how this book opens, how we are introduced to Jesus, and here how we are introduced to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We covered extensively over the last two Sundays this notion of Jesus as the Word, as the Lagos, and his role in creation, in his eternality. And so we have the Word, and now we have the voice. Alistair Begg in his sermon said that the Word exists in the mind, before the voice ever articulates it. The voice is merely the vehicle by which the word is made known. The voice is heard but never seen, but the word endures when the voice goes silent. Are you the Christ? Nope. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the promised prophet? No, I'm just a voice. I'm here to draw your attention to someone else. John even takes it a step further in his desire for people to understand in verse 27. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he says. It's actually the second time John says something like that in this gospel. In verse 15, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And then he repeats that same phrase in verse 30. John places himself completely subservient to Jesus in every way. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. In those days, a rabbi would have followers, students. And those students would serve the rabbi. They would do things for him. They would take care of cooking. They would make accommodations when traveling. They would generally do things to serve the rabbi in his life and ministry. Think unpaid intern. They did what they could so that they could make it so that the rabbi's life was a little bit easier, a little bit easier for him to do ministry, and in turn, they learned, they experienced, they were taught by the rabbi. They spent time with him and learned with him. The idea being that you spent so much time with the rabbi that once you yourself were in a place of authority, someone could hear the way you talked, the way you carried yourself, and they could say, oh, that's a follower of so-and-so. That's a follower of that rabbi. I could see the mannerisms. I can hear the way they talk. You were that close to them. 
And there's a quote that said, Every service which a slave performs for his master, a disciple will perform for his teacher, except to untie his sandal strap. Now, sandals were barely what we would consider sandals today. It was a thin piece of leather or material and straps to hold it in place. It was barely considered any kind of shoe. It really just kept you from maybe taking something sharp directly into your foot. And we didn't have paved roads at this point. So it's a lot of dust, a lot of dirt, a lot of mud, excrement that you're walking through. Your feet were filthy all the time. The removal of sandals when you went to someone's house or you went in to worship, it was such a disgusting and unwanted act. It was reserved for the slave. It was reserved for the indentured service. It was to be done by people near the very bottom of the social order. And John says, yeah, that role... I'm not, un- I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not worthy for that role when it comes to Jesus. Now, this is not John thinking too little of himself or having a bad self-image, but rather he has a humility that far exceeds what we would consider normal today. See, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is rather a right understanding of who you are in relation to who God is. When we adequately adequately understand the awesomeness of God and the finite, flawed, createdness of ourselves, it doesn't mean we think less of ourselves, but we just rather have a right view of the greatness of God. This way of thinking doesn't really play in our world today. Because everything about our world is competitive and comparative. Our entire economy is based on comparing what someone else has and wanting it and feeling less than. If you will buy this, if you will get that, if you will do this thing, then you will be happy and fulfilled and satisfied. Social media quickly became about less about being real or sharing yourself with others, but rather it was, look at how awesome I am. We edit and manipulate and orchestrate this perfect moment and poses to show how hashtag blessed we are. And even though we all know that's not real life, right? You see these perfect images on Instagram. We know that's not real life. Still, we see it, and there's something in us, and we get combative and comparative. Why aren't I as good? Why aren't I as strong, as pretty, as smart, as accomplished? And rather than just enjoying someone else's joy and wins, we instead internalize and think less of ourselves. See, humility doesn't say, that person's awesome, so that means I suck. No, humility says, that person's awesome, great. I'm not at that level. I'm not that person. That doesn't mean I am any less than. See, John has an accurate understanding of who he is in relation to who Jesus is. In fact, later on in John 3, we'll get there, I don't know, in a couple of months maybe, he says of his ministry as he sees Jesus thriving and he's collecting followers and, he's ba- and his followers are baptizing people and he's making waves and John's own followers say, what's he doing? Why, why aren't we why aren't we as popular as we once were? John's reaction in John three in John three thirty says, He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. The whole point of what I'm doing here is to set the way, is to get things ready, and now it's ready so I don't have to be the guy. I don't have to be the focus. I never wanted to be. It's about him. It's a testimony of no. John's second testimony point is a testimony of new. 
We see in verse 25. They asked him then, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John, you have very clearly stated who you aren't. So what are you doing here? Specifically, why are you baptizing, John? Because baptism was not a common practice for Jewish people. There was a baptism for those who were proselytes, who were those who were trying to convert to become part of Jewish faith. And there was certain ritualistic cleansings that were mostly focused about the priests. And both of those things were self-administered. You went into the water and you dunked yourself. You didn't have somebody else do it. But John is out here, and through his actions, he is claiming he has an authority outside of himself to baptize people. And what's more, again, if we look throughout the synoptic, synoptic Gospels, and we see more about John's ministry, his baptism was about proclaiming not only baptism, but repentance, the forgiveness of sins. See, the only time a Jewish, a full-blooded Jewish follower had to be completely cleansed, a full immersion in water, was if you were defiled, unclean. Maybe you came in contact with a dead body, something of that nature, something that removed you from community. So for John, he's calling people to be baptized, including the Jewish people. And so what he's doing is he is showing them, in essence, look, you're defiled. You are not clean. You are not right with God. This is a people who found their identity and their righteousness wrapped up in who they were as God's people. Because they were descendants of Abraham, because of their bloodline, they were special. And this message from John is something new and different. And he wasn't just preaching to the Gentiles. His message and ministry was for all people, that all people needed to repent and prepare for the one who was coming. This message of repentance and baptism was striking a chord with people. They're coming from all over Judea and Jerusalem. This idea of repent, it's to change your way of thinking. Literally, it's to go in the opposite direction. You were thinking one way, now you repent, you're changing direction. Literally, it's go in the opposite direction. I'm trying to get to Lake Michigan. I made a wrong turn, and now I end up in Park Ridge. I end up in Arlington Heights. Turn around, go the opposite way. Go east until your feet get wet. That's how you get to Lake Michigan. God's people were coming out to the wilderness and saying, I think i got to go a different way because something new is happening here. John's baptism, much like baptism is for us today, was a symbol. It was a willingness to admit and acknowledge sin. Look at verse 26. John answered them and said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John tells the leaders what he's doing. He says, I baptize with water. It's a symbol. It's a physical metaphor. It's a sign of what is to come. He says, I baptize with water. I give this sign, but this sign doesn't point to another thing, another action, another goal to accomplish. Rather, this sign points to a person. The one among you who you do not know, whose straps of the sandals I am not worthy to untie. I'm performing a sign, John says, but the one who is coming, the one who the sign is about, he is doing something new. The baptism 
His baptism that he brings is going to linger and last because as John says later on, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that baptism doesn't go away. You don't dry that baptism off with a towel. That one sticks and stays and changes everything and makes all things new. That's what Jesus did, and that's what he brings in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. He makes things new. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. It is grace, the unmerited favor of God, that he would send his son. It is grace that Jesus would go to the cross for us. Grace that God would reveal that truth to us. It is grace that he would remove the spiritual blinders from us so that we might see and believe. It is grace that we have been invited into the family of God. It is grace that we would even, he would even give us the opportunity and ability to place our faith in him. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Faith that God, that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he was perfect and sinless, and so his death becomes the ultimate and perfect sacrifice for us. He became a sacrifice on our behalf. He took our place and served our guilty sentence so that now we don't have to. As Paul writes just a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is faith in Jesus and him alone that we gain the innocent, justified, right standing with God. That standing is not because of us. It's not because we are impressive, because we won, because we are good enough. It's because Jesus, he gives us his right standing, his innocence, his blamelessness. What John was doing here is pointing people to this new thing, getting them ready, getting their hearts and minds thinking beyond today, thinking beyond themselves and what they can do, what they can accomplish, and instead preparing their hearts for a new way, a new thing that was coming. That's what Jesus does, and we'll see that over and over throughout the gospel. He takes what was, and he gives it new life. Time and time again, that newness, that new life, is found in the reality of who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of God. Because he is those things, what he does is make all things new. He literally says it in Revelation 21.5, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we get to verse 28 and verse 29, and we get to 28, and it says, These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We get a little timeline information for us. Verse 28 tells us where this is all happening, and then verse 29 tells us that a day passes. Now, when we read John's gospel, John is not always super linear in the way he tells his story. But especially early on in these early chapters, he does often give us a guidepost of some kind of day, some kind of timeline of here's this event happening, there's this celebration happening, or even just something like, and then the next day comes. And he also gives us a lot of guideposts on where we are. So if you were around for Acts, it's map day. Um, so map day. So this line coming around here is the Jordan River. And right in here is Bethany. 
So we are right in the smack dab, kind of middle of nowhere. And that's where this conversation takes place, right off the bank of the Jordan River, kind of in the middle of nowhere. So that's where we are. I'll try and point it out as we go. And that takes us to our last testimony. So we have the testimony of no, we have the testimony of new, and now we have the testimony of now. He's here now. John says it in verse 29. He sees Jesus coming. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No more waiting. No more wanting. No more hoping and prophecies about him. He's here. Jesus is coming toward John, and John declares that he has, once he has arrived, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the true Lamb, the true sacrifice. For thousands of years, thousands upon thousands of lambs were slaughtered and offered as sacrifices for the sins of God's people. But the very fact that they had to keep doing it over and over again proved that it was never going to get the job done. It was never going to be able to cover their sins. It was never going to be able to offer them forgiveness. It was never going to cleanse the souls of the people. Jesus came to be the ultimate, final sacrifice needed for our sins in our place. And so when John sees Jesus and he calls out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the sacrifice, not a sacrifice, but the sacrifice. He has arrived. That's what Christ came to do. That's the mission of the incarnation, to get Jesus to the cross, to make a way where there was no way, to be for us the sin substitute, the sin sacrifice, and that's what he ended up doing. He was for us the true provision from God. What we needed was a sacrifice, and God gave it to us. Just as on that day in Genesis 22, when God tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, the son who I promised you, the son who you waited decades for. I want you to take him up to a mountain I'm going to show you. I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice and kill him. Abraham hears that and responds. And he takes the supplies and he takes his son and he goes up on to this mountain and he straps his son to an altar. And just as he is about to kill him, he is stopped by God. God says, Abraham, don't do that. This was a test. I know your faith is pure, and I have provided for you. And in that place, they're in the thicket by near where the altar was. A ram is caught by his horns. God provided for Abraham a sacrifice, a substitute, a provision. That is what Jesus is for us. He's the ram God provided. He's the sacrifice God provides. We didn't earn it, win it, or impress God so much that he had to have us on his team. But for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God loves you. Loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. You are saved not by your will or your work or your wit, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ Alone, It is God who makes this happen. John says as much in verse 33. He says it twice, but in verse 33 he says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Here's how John knew who Jesus was. Because God told him, because God was involved. John himself said, I would have missed it. If it wasn't for God's act of grace and mercy to illuminate Jesus to me, I would have missed it. God told me what to look for, he, and then he gave me the eyes to see, and I was able to see. 
And that's how he closes out in verse 34. I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And whilst John so clearly and definitively testifies to the deity of Christ, there are many, many who missed it. He said in verse 26, John answered them and says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He was in their midst, and they missed it. For years, he teaches and heals, and he gives signs and wonders and miracles over and over again, and they missed it. Judas was in the twelve. He spent more time with Jesus than most anybody, and he missed it. It is possible to be tangibly close, to be physically near, but spiritually distant and lost. It is possible to be right there and miss it. Don't miss it. This is for you right now. He is among us right now. And there are some of you here today that were hearing this and think you know him, think you could pick him out of the crowd, and yet you don't actually know him. He is in your midst and you don't recognize it. Your chance is available to know him right now. We aren't talking just intellectual knowledge. We're talking, we aren't just talking facts and figures, but it's an answer to the question, do you know him? And for some of you who hear that and you say, that's a silly, silly question. I'm in church on a Sunday. Of course I know him. But just because you're in a restaurant doesn't make you the chef. He is more than just a prophet. He's more than just a good guy. He's more than just a teacher of moral concepts. He is God in the flesh. He didn't just speak the word. He is the word. He is perfection. He is salvation. The writer of Hebrews says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The fullness of God, the exact imprint, the exact nature and character of God walking among the creation he made. There are those who think they know him or think they are in right standing with him because they're nice people, because they're generous, because they vote a certain way, because they raise their kids a certain way, because they live a certain way, because they grew up in church or because they have a relative who grew up in church. But those people have never allowed themselves to actually know Jesus on an experiential level, to allow him to lead and rule and shape their lives. You never actually submitted and gave your own perceived authority over to him, and instead you try to keep him at a distance. Try to form and shape him in your own image, trying to pick and choose the areas of your life and the times in your life when you want him to be in charge, but you want to keep most of the control. Do you actually know him, or do you just know a lot of information about him? Do you know facts and figures, or do you know him on an experiential level? you want a relationship with Jesus, you want to engage with him, open your Bible, read it, shut off the distractions, pray, enter the conversation, engage with him. We study the Bible not to just learn information, but to let the living, active word of God change us and call us to respond. There's intellectual knowledge and then there's experiential knowledge. It's not just, I know God is gracious in theory, but rather, I know God gives grace because he gave me the grace to know him personally and to save me from my sins. God wants us to get past the intellectual and into the experiential. There's nothing wrong with intellect. There's nothing wrong with knowing things. You should learn, study, ask questions. God has made himself accessible. It is good to use your mind and use your logic and approach God in those things. Learn information about him. 
But if all we have are spiritual trivia answers, we don't actually know him. To know him is to have a relationship with him, to be transformed and changed and affected by him. Give time to being with God in prayer. Just talk to him. Share with him your victories and your defeats, your highs and lows, your wants and needs, your desires that you have for yourself and for others. But doesn't he already know that stuff? Isn't If he's God, doesn't he already know all those things? Yeah, but he wants to hear it. He likes to hear it. I don't like it when something goes wrong with my kids, if they're hurt or scared or something breaks, but I do like it when they ask me for help. I like knowing that they know that if something has gone wrong, they can ask for mom or dad, and we're going to be there to make things better. I don't always like it in the moment, but I do like it when it's bedtime and my son just starts telling me random things about his day. Something he read or a story he heard, and he wants to share it with me. He wants to share it with me because he loves me and he wants to have an interaction with me. Usually it's because I've told him to go to bed six times, but he wants to talk. And I love that. God gave us prayer. He gave us the chance to talk with him and he invites us into the conversation. He says to us, I'm here, I'm listening, and I want to hear from you. I'm interested in you. Don't minimize or trivialize the huge blessing and gift from God that he loves you and he wants to know you and he wants to engage with you. He wants you to know him and he's inviting you into that reality. And it might start with information, but if you actually know Christ, there is life change that happens. Your heart, your wants, your thoughts, your desires, these things start to get changed and transformed when you have a real relationship with Christ. Do you know him? Have you been changed by him, transformed by him, experienced the new life that is being offered to you in the gospel? Do you actually know him? John's testimony is of a person who encountered Jesus, who knew him. And because he experienced Jesus, he knew him intimately. He knew he had a testimony of no, a testimony of humility that says, everything I do, Christ must increase, I must decrease. He had a testimony of new. He could call people to repentance and challenge the status quo because what he was calling them to was to point them to, a pe- point them to a person who was going to give them new life that God was providing, a new life that we get to experience by grace through faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He had a testimony of now because the Lamb of God had arrived. No more waiting, no more delay. It happened. The Messiah was on earth, and the mission to redeem, restore, and renew this world was at hand. And still is here now we have in our midst the Holy Spirit to guide us, to shape us and challenge and lead us. And the reality of the gospel is that it is a life everlasting mission, is a life everlasting message. And it makes us new and it's not a for later thing. It's not a when the kids are grown, I'll take it serious. When life is more stable, then I'll take things seriously. Jesus is calling you here now in this moment on this day to follow him pursue him and know him more. He who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he who is the Christ, the Son of God, is calling you to himself. Respond. Know him. Be known by him. Be changed. Be made new. Now, let the grace through faith change you. There is new life to be had in Christ for you today. So let's pray as we walk into this new life. Let's pray.
over and over. You had a plan. You had a mission. You gave these glimpses. You gave these prophecies, these words of who to look for, of what to look for. And then you fulfilled that promise. You fulfilled all of those things in sending your son. We get to live on this side of eternity, on, on this side of the cross, where it's in the past, where we can look back and say, yeah, of course, look at all those different points. How could they possibly have missed it? And yet, over and over, we miss it. Even those who know you, even those who walk with you, we miss it. We forget, we lose sight, we ignore the reality of the gospel. The reality of the life change that not only saves us, but changes and affects everything about this world now, today. The reality of the gospel and how it changes our interactions with one another, our interactions with ourselves, and our interaction with you. We forget, we get distracted, we lose sight, we get overwhelmed, and we miss it. God, help us. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Our desires, our wants, our motives, our needs. To fix ourselves on you, to focus on you. And allow you to lead, and allow you to take care, and allow you to guide and challenge and encourage and provide for us. God, as we are your sons and daughters, we pray, God, for God, we pray for a testimony like John's. One of humility that says, it's not about me, what I can accomplish, what I can do, look how awesome I am, but one that says, look at how I have been blessed by God. Look how I have been made new by God. Look at how good you are. Testimony that says, you have made things new, you have made me new. I don't have to live into the sins that I have committed or the sins that have been committed against me. I can let go of those things and the guilt and shame and worry and fear and doubt. Those things are not me anymore. Those things are old. But you have made me new. Testimony that says this gospel, this reality, this relationship with you is for now and it changes and affects things now. God, will we be a people, help us to be a people, to live like we actually believe these things, that they have changed us and transformed us. And God, for anyone who doesn't actually know you, who thinks they know you, who thinks they know a lot about you, but hasn't actually been changed, hasn't actually been transformed, hasn't actually experienced the grace and mercy and forgiveness of the gospel, Lord. Let today be that day. Let the, this moment be that moment where they set aside all the other things and they actually get to experience the grace and mercy and forgiveness of you. That they get to actually step into the new life you have provided for them through your gospel. God, help us in, to live in light of that message as we go to be the lights of the world you have made us to be. We thank you and praise you. Amen.